Chapter 28, Part 1 of The San Francisco Calamity by Earthquake and Fire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Apfelstadt. The San Francisco Calamity by Earthquake and Fire by Charles Morris. Chapter 28. Part 1. Mount Pele and its Harvest of Death. St. Pierre, the principal city of the French island of Martinique in the West Indies, lies for the length of about a mile along the island coast, with high cliffs hemming it in, its houses climbing the slope tier upon tier. At one place where a river breaks through the cliffs, the city creeps further up towards the mountains. As seen from the bay, its appearance is picturesque and charming, with the soft tints of its tiles, the gray of its walls, the clumps of verdure in its midst, and the wall of green in the rear. Seen from its streets, this beauty disappears, and the chief attraction of the town is gone. Back from the three miles of hills which sweep in an arc around the town is the noble Montaigne Pele, lying several miles to the north of the city, a mass of dark rock some four thousand feet high with jagged outline and cleft with gorges and ravines down which flow numerous streams gushing from the crater lake of the great volcano though known to be a volcano it was looked upon as practically extinct though as late as august eighteen fifty six it had been in eruption no lava at that time came from its crater but it hurled out great quantities of ashes and mud with strong sulphurous odor then it went to rest again and slept till 1902. The people had long ceased to fear it. No one expected that grand old Mount Pele, the slumbering, so it was thought, tranquil old hill, would ever spurt forth fire and death. This was entirely unlooked for. Mount Pele was regarded by the natives as a sort of protector. They had an almost superstitious affection for it. From the outskirts of the city it rose gradually, its sides grown thick with rich grass, and dotted here and there with spreading shrubbery and drooping trees. There was no pleasanter outing for an afternoon than a journey up the green, velvet-like sides of the towering mountain, and a view of the quaint, picturesque city slumbering at its base. A peaceful scene. There were no rocky cliffs, no crags, no protruding borders. The mountain was peace itself. It seemed to promise perpetual protection. The poetic natives relied upon it to keep back storms from the land, and frighten with its stern brow the tempests from the sea. They pointed to it with profoundest pride as one of the most beautiful mountains in the world. Children played in its bowers and arbors. Families picnicked there day after day during the balmy weather. Hundreds of tourists ascended to the summit and looked with pleasure at the beautiful crystal lake, which sparkled and glinted in the sunshine. Montpellier was the place of enjoyment of the people of St. Pierre. I can hear the placid natives say, Old Father Palais is our protector, not our destroyer. Not until two weeks before the eruption did the slumbering mountain show signs of waking to death and disaster. On the 23rd of April it first displayed symptoms of internal disquiet. A great column of smoke began to rise from it, and was accompanied from time to time by showers of ashes and cinders. 
Despite these signals, there was nothing until Monday, May 5th, to indicate actual danger. On that day, a stream of smoking mud and lava burst through the top of the crater and plunged into the valley of the River Blanche, overwhelming the Guarin sugar works and killing 23 workmen and the son of the proprietor. Mr. Guarin's was one of the largest sugar works on the island. Its destruction entailed a heavy loss. The mud which overwhelmed it followed the beds of streams toward the north of the island. The alarm in the city was great, but it was somewhat allayed by the reports of an expert commission appointed by the governor, which decided that the eruption was normal and that the city was in no peril. To further allay the excitement, the governor, with several scientists, took up his residence in Saint-Pierre. He could not restrain the people by force, but the moral effect of his presence and the decision of the scientists had a similar disastrous report. A graphic description by a sufferer. The existing state of affairs during these few waiting days is so graphically given in a letter from Mrs. Thomas T. Prentice, wife of the United States Consul at St. Pierre, to her sister in Melrose, a suburban city of Boston, that we quote it here. My dear sister, this morning the whole population of the city is on the alert, and every eye is directed towards Mont Pelee, an extinct volcano. Everybody is afraid that the volcano has taken into its heart to burst forth and destroy the whole island. Fifty years ago Mont Pelee burst forth with terrific force and destroyed everything within a radius of several miles. For several days the mountain has been bursting forth in flame, and immense quantities of lava are flowing down its side. All the inhabitants are going up to see it. There is not a horse to be had on the island, those belonging to the natives being kept in readiness to leave at a moment's notice. Last Wednesday, which was April 23rd, I was in my room with little Christine, and we heard three distinct shocks. They were so great that we supposed at first that there was someone at the door, and Christine went and found no one there. The first report was very loud. The second and third were so great that the dishes were thrown from the shelves, and the house was rocked. We can see Montpellier from the rear windows of our house, and although it is fully four miles away, we can hear the roar of fire and lava issuing from it. The city is covered with ashes, and clouds of smoke have been over our heads for the last five days. The smell of sulfur is so strong that horses on the streets stop and snort, and some of them are obliged to give up, drop in their harnesses, and die from suffocation. Many of the people are obliged to wear wet handkerchiefs over their faces to protect them from the fumes of sulfur. My husband assures me that there is no immediate danger, and when there is the least particle of danger, we will leave this place. There is an American schooner, the R.F. Morse, in the harbor, and she will remain here for at least two weeks. If the volcano becomes very bad, we shall embark at once and go out to sea. The papers in this city are asking if we are going to experience another earthquake similar to that which struck here some fifty years ago. The Fateful Eighth Day of May the writer of this letter and her husband, Consul Prentice, trusted Mount Pele too long. They perished with all the inhabitants of the city in a deadly flood of fire and ashes that descended on the devoted place on the fateful morning of Thursday, May 8th. Only for the few who were rescued from the ships in the harbor there would be scarcely a living soul to tell that dread story of ruin and death. The most graphic accounts are those given by rescued officers of the Roraima, one of a fleet of the Quebec Steamship Company trading with the West Indies. This vessel had left the island of Dominica for Martinique at midnight on Wednesday and reached St. Pierre about seven o'clock on Thursday morning. 
the greatest difficulty was experienced in getting into the port the air being thick with falling ashes and the darkness intense the ship had to grope its way to the anchorage appalling sounds were issuing from the mountain behind the town which was shrouded in darkness the ashes were falling thickly on the steamer's deck where the passengers and others were gazing at the town some being engaged in photographing the scene the best way in which we can describe a scene of which few live to tell the story is to give the narratives of a number of the survivors from their several stories a coherent idea of the terrible scene can be formed from the various accounts given of the terrible explosion by the officers of the roraima we select as the first example the following description by assistant purser thompson a tale of sudden ruin i saw st pierre destroyed it was blotted out by one great flash of fire nearly forty thousand persons were all killed at once out of eighteen vessels lying in the road only one the british steamship rodham escaped and she i hear lost more than half on board it was a dying crew that took her out our boat the roraima of the quebec line arrived at st pierre early thursday morning for hours before we entered the roadstead we could see flames and smoke rising from mount pelet no one on board had any idea of danger captain g t mugga was on the bridge and all hands got on deck to see the show the spectacle was magnificent as we approached st pierre we could distinguish the rolling and leaping of the red flames that belched from the mountain in huge volumes and gushed high into the sky enormous clouds of black smoke hung over the volcano when we anchored in st pierre i noticed the cable steamship grappler the rodham three or four american schooners and a number of italian and norwegian barks the flames were then spurting straight up in the air now and then waving to one side or the other for a moment and again leaping suddenly higher up there was a constant muffled roar it was like the biggest oil refinery in the world burning up on the mountain top there was a tremendous explosion about seven forty five o'clock soon after we got in the mountain was blown to pieces there was no warning the side of the volcano was ripped out and there was hurled straight toward us a solid wall of flame it sounded like thousands of cannon the wave of fire was on us and over us like a lightning flash it was like a hurricane of fire i saw it strike the cable steamship grappler broadside on and capsize her from end to end she burst into flames and then sank the fire rolled in mass straight down upon st pierre and the shipping the town vanished before our eyes and the air grew stifling hot and we were in the thick of it wherever the mass of fire struck the sea the water boiled and sent up vast clouds of steam the sea was torn into huge whirlpools that careened toward the open sea one of these horrible hot whirlpools swung under the roraima and pulled her down on her beam ends with the suction she careened way over to port, and then the fire hurricane from the volcano smashed her, and over she went on the opposite side. The fire waves swept off the mast and smokestack as if they were cut by a knife. Heat caused explosion. Captain Mugga was the only one on deck not killed outright. He was caught by the fire wave and terribly burned. He yelled to get up the anchor, but before two fathoms were heaved in, the Roraima was almost upset by the boiling whirlpool, and the fire wave had thrown her down on her beam ends to starboard. Captain Mugga was overcome by the flames. He fell unconscious from the bridge and toppled overboard. 
the blast of fire from the volcano lasted only a few minutes it shriveled and set fire to everything it touched thousands of casks of rum were stored in st pierre and these were exploded by the terrific heat the burning rum ran in streams down every street and out to the sea this blazing rum set fire to the Roraima several times. Before the volcano burst, the landings of St. Pierre were crowded with people. After the explosion, not one living being was seen on land. Only 25 of those on the Roraima out of 68 were left after the first flash. The French cruiser Suchet came in and took us off at 2 p.m. She remained nearby, helping all she could, until 5 o'clock, then went to Fort de France with all the people she had rescued. At that time it looked as if the entire north end of the island was on fire. C. C. Evans of Montreal and John G. Morris of New York, who were among those rescued, say the vessel arrived at 6 o'clock. As eight bells were struck, a frightful explosion was heard up the mountain. A cloud of fire, toppling and roaring, swept with lightning speed down the mountainside and over the bay and town. The Rorama was nearly sunk and caught fire at once. I can never forget the horrid, fiery, choking whirlwind which enveloped me, said Mr. Evans. Mr. Morris and I rushed below. We are not very badly burned, not so bad as most of them. When the fire came, we were going to go to our posts, we are engineers, to weigh anchor and get out. When we came up, we found the ship afire aft, and fought it forward until three o'clock, when the Suchet came to our rescue. We were then building a raft. Ben Benson, the carpenter of the Rorama, said, I was on deck amidships when I heard an explosion. The captain ordered me to up anchor. I got to the windlass, but when the fire came, I went into the forecastle and got my duds. When I came out, I talked with Captain Mugga, Mr. Scott, the first officer, and others. They had been on the bridge. The captain was horribly burned. He had inhaled flames and wanted to jump into the sea. I tried to make him take a life preserver. The captain, who was undressed, jumped overboard and hung on a line for a while. Then he disappeared. The Cooper's Story James Taylor, a cooper employed on the Rorama, gives the following account of his experience of the disaster. Hearing a tremendous report and seeing the ashes falling thicker, I dived into a room, dragging with me Samuel Thomas, a gangway man and fellow countryman, shutting the door tightly. Shortly after, I heard a voice, which I recognized as that of the chief mate, Mr. Scott. Opening the door with great caution, I drew him in. The nose of Thomas was burned by the intense heat. We three and Thompson, the assistant purser, out of sixty-eight souls on board, were the only persons who escaped practically uninjured. The heat being unbearable, I emerged in a few moments, and the scene that presented itself to my eyes baffled description. All around the deck were the dead and dying covered with boiling mud. There they lay, men, women, and little children, and the appeals of the latter for water were heart-rending. When water was given them, they could not swallow it, owing to their throats being filled with ashes or burnt with the heated air. The ship was burning aft, and I jumped overboard, the sea being intensely hot. I was at once swept seaward by a tidal wave, but the sea receded a considerable distance. The return wave washed me up against an upturned sloop to which I clung. I was joined by a man so dreadfully burned and disfigured as to be unrecognizable. Afterwards, I found he was the captain of the Rorama, Captain Mugga. He was in dreadful agony, begging piteously to be put on board his ship. 
Picking up some wreckage which contained bedding in a tool chest, I, with the help of five others who had joined me on the wreck, constructed a rude raft on which we placed the captain. Then, seeing an upturned boat, I asked one of the five, a native of Martinique, to swim and fetch it. Instead of returning to us, he picked up two of his countrymen and went away in the direction of Fort de France. Seeing the Rodham, which arrived in port shortly after we anchored, making for the Roirama, I said good-bye to the captain and swam back to the Roirama. The Rodham, however, burst into flames and put to sea. I reached the Rorama about half-past two, and was afterwards taken off by a boat from the French warship Suchet. Twenty-four others, with myself, were taken on to Fort de France. Three of these died before reaching port. A number of others have since died. Samuel Thomas, the gangway man, whose life was saved by the forethought of Taylor, says that the scene on the burning ship was awful. The groans and cries of the dying, for whom nothing could be done, were horrible. He describes a woman as being burned to death with a living babe in her arms. He says that it seems as if the whole world was afire. Consolami's Statement The inflammable material in the forepart of the ship that would have ignited that part of the vessel was thrown overboard by him and the other two uninjured men. The grappler? The telegraph company's ship was seen opposite the Eusine Guerin and disappeared as if blown up by a submarine explosion. The captain's body was subsequently found by a boat from the Suchet. Consul Aim of Guadalupe, who, as already stated, had hastened to Fort de France on hearing of the terrible event, tells the story of the disaster in the following words. Thursday morning, the inhabitants of the city woke to found heavy clouds shrouding Mount Pele crater. All day Wednesday, horrible detonations had been heard. These were echoed from St. Thomas on the north end of Barbados on the south. The cannonading ceased on Wednesday night, and fine ashes fell like rain on Saint-Pierre. The inhabitants were alarmed, but Governor Moutet, who had arrived at Saint-Pierre the evening before, did everything possible to allay the panic. The British steamer Rorama reached Saint-Pierre on Thursday with ten passengers, among whom were Mrs. Stokes and her three children and Mrs. H. J. Ince. They were watching the rain of ashes when, with a frightful roar and terrific electrical discharges, a cyclone of fire, mud, and steam swept down from the crater over the town and bay, sweeping all before it and destroying the fleet of vessels at anchor off the shore. There the accounts of the catastrophe so far obtainable cease. Thirty thousand corpses are strewn about, buried in the ruins of Saint-Pierre, or else floating, gnawed by sharks in the surrounding seas. Twenty-eight charred, half-dead human beings were brought here. Sixteen of them are already dead, and only four of the whole number are expected to recover. A Woman's Experience on the Rorama Margaret Stokes, the nine-year-old daughter of the late Clement Stokes of New York, who, with her mother, a brother aged four and a sister aged three years, was on the ill-fated steamer Roirama, was saved from that vessel, but is not expected to live. Her nurse, Clara King, tells the following story of her experience. She said she was in her stateroom when the steward of the Roirama called out to her, Look at Mount Pelée! She went on deck and saw a vast mass of black cloud coming down the volcano. The steward ordered her to return to the saloon, saying, It is coming. Miss King then rushed to the saloon. She says she experienced a feeling of suffocation, which was followed by intense heat. The after part of the Rorama broke out in flames. 
ben benson the carpenter of the rorama severely burned assisted miss king and margaret stokes to escape with the help of mr scott the first mate of the rorama he constructed a raft with life preservers upon this miss king and margaret were placed while this was being done margaret's little brother died mate scott brought the child water at great personal danger but it was unavailing shortly after the death of the little boy mrs stokes succumbed Margaret and Miss King eventually got away on the raft and were picked up by the steamer Corona. Mate Scott also escaped. Miss King did not sustain serious injuries. She covered the face of Margaret with her dress, but still the child was probably fatally burned. The only woman known at that time to have survived the disaster at Saint-Pierre was a negress named Philote. She was found in a cellar Sunday afternoon where she had been for three days. She was still alive, but fearfully burned from head to toes. She died afterward in the hospital. Captain Freeman's Thrilling Account Of the vessels in the harbor of St. Pierre on the fateful morning, only one, the British steamer Rodham, escaped, and that with a crew of whom few reached the open sea alive. Those who did escape were terribly injured. Captain Freeman of this vessel tells what he experienced in the following thrilling language. St. Lucia, British West Indies, May 11th. The steamer Rodham, of which I am captain, left St. Lucia at midnight of May 7th, and was off St. Pierre, Martinique, at six o'clock on the morning of the 8th. I noticed that the volcano Mont Pelé was smoking, and crept slowly in towards the bay. Finding there, among others, the steamer Rorama, the telegraph-repairing steamer Grappler, and four sailing vessels, I went to anchorage between seven and eight, and had hardly moored when the side of the volcano opened out with a terrible explosion. A wall of fire swept over the town and the bay. The Rodham was struck broadside by the burning mass. The shock to the ship was terrible, nearly capsizing her. Awful Results Hearing the awful report of the explosion and seeing the great wall of flames approaching the steamer, those on deck sought shelter wherever it was possible, jumping into the cabin, the forecastle, and even into the hold. I was in the chart-room, but the burning embers were borne by so swift a movement of the air that they were swept in through the door and portholes, suffocating and scorching me badly. I was terribly burned by these embers about the face and hands, but managed to reach the deck. There, as soon as it was possible, I mustered those few survivors who seemed able to move, and ordered them to slip anchor, leaped for the bridge, and ran the engine for full speed astern. The second and third engineer and a fireman were on watch below, and so escaped injury. They did their part in the attempt to escape, but the men on deck could not work the steering gear, because it was jammed by the debris from the volcano. We accordingly went ahead in astern until the gear was free, but in this running backward and forward it was two hours after the first shock before we were clear of the bay. One of the most terrifying conditions was that, the atmosphere being charged with ashes, it was totally dark. The sun was completely obscured, and the air was only illuminated by the flames from the volcano and those of the burning town and shipping. It seems small to say that the scene was terrifying in the extreme. 
as we backed out we passed close to the rorama which was one mass of blaze the steam was rushing from the engine room and the screams of those on board were terrible to hear the cries for help were all in vain for i could do nothing but save my own ship when i last saw the rorama she was settling down by the stern that was about ten o'clock in the morning when the Rodham was safely out of the harbour at St. Pierre, with its desolation and horrors, I made for St. Lucia, arriving there, and when the ship was safe, I mustered the survivors as well as I was able, and searched for the dead and injured. Some I found in the saloon, where they had vainly sought for safety, but the cabins were full of burning embers that had blown in through the portals. Through these the fire swept as through funnels and burned the victims where they lay or stood, leaving a circular imprint of scorched and burned flesh. I brought ten on deck who were thus burned. Two of them were dead. The others survived, although in a dreadful state of torture from their bones. Their screams of agony were heart-rending. Out of a total of twenty-three on board the Rodham, which includes the captain and the crew, ten are dead and several are in the hospital. My first and second mates, my chief engineer, and my supercargo, Campbell by name, were killed. The ship was covered from stem to stern with tons of powdered lava, which retained its heat for hours after it had fallen. In many cases it was practically incandescent, and to move about the deck in this burning mass was not only difficult, but absolutely perilous. I am only now able to begin thoroughly to clear and search the ship for any damage done by this volcanic rain, and to see if there are any corpses in out-of-the-way places. For instance, this morning I found one body in the peak of the forecastle. The body was horribly burned, and the sailor had evidently crept in there in his agony to die. On the arrival of the Rodham at St. Lucia, the ship presented an appalling appearance. Dead and calcined bodies lay about the deck, which was also crowded with injured, helpless, and suffering people. Prompt assistance was rendered to the injured by the authorities here, and my poor, tortured men were taken to the hospital. The dead were buried. I have omitted mention that out of twenty-one black laborers that I brought from Granada to help in stevedoring, only six survived. Most of the others threw themselves overboard to escape a dreadful fate, but they met a worse one, for it is an actual fact that the water around the ship was literally at a boiling heat. The escape of my vessel was miraculous. The woodwork of the cabins and bridge and everything inflammable on the deck were constantly igniting, and it was with great difficulty that we few survivors managed to keep the flames down. My ropes, awnings, tarpaulins were completely burned up. I witnessed the entire destruction of Saint-Pierre. The flames enveloped the town in every quarter with such rapidity that it was impossible that any person could be saved. As I have said, the day was suddenly turned to night, but I could distinguish by the light of the burning town people distractedly running about on the beach. The burning buildings stood out from the surrounding darkness like black shadows. All this time the mountain was roaring and shaking, and in the intervals between these terrifying sounds I could hear the cries of despair and agony from the thousands who were perishing. These cries added to the terror of the scene, but it is impossible to describe its horror or the dreadful sensations it produced. It was like witnessing the end of the world. 
let me add that after the first shock was over the survivors of the crew rendered willing help to navigate the ship to this port mr plusineau our agent in martinique happened to be on board and was saved and i really believe that he is the only survivor of st pierre as it is he is seriously burned on his hands and face freeman master british steamship rodham the etona passes st pierre the British steamer Etona of the Norton Line stopped at St. Lucia to coal on May 10th. Captain Cantell there visited the Rodham and had an interview with Captain Freeman. On the 11th, the Etona put to sea again, passing St. Pierre in the afternoon. We subjoin her captain's story. The weather was very clear and we had a fine view, but the old outlines of St. Pierre were not recognizable. Everything was a mass of blue lava and the formation of the land itself seemed to have changed. When we were about eight miles off the northern end of the island, Mount Pelay began to belch a second time. Clouds of smoke and lava shot into the air and spread all over the sea, darkening the sun. Our decks in a few minutes were covered with a substance that looked like sand dyed a bluish tint, and which smelled like phosphorus. For all that the day was clear, there was little to be seen satisfactorily. Over the island there hung a blue haze. It seemed to me that the formation, the topography of the island, was altered. Everything seemed to be covered with a blue dust, such as had fallen aboard us every day since we had been within the affected region. It was blue lava dust. For more than an hour we scanned the coast with our glasses, now and then discovering something that looked like a ruined hamlet or collection of buildings. There was no life visible suddenly we realized that we might have to fight for our lives as the Rodham's people had done. We were about four miles off the northern end of the island when suddenly there shot up in the air to a tremendous height a column of smoke. The sky darkened and the smoke seemed to swirl down upon us. In fact, it spread all around, darkening the atmosphere as far as we could see. I called Chief Engineer Farish to the deck. Do you see that over there? I asked, pointing to the eruption, for it was the second eruption of Mont Pelet. He saw it all right. Captain Freeman's story was fresh in my mind. Well, Farish, rush your engines as they have never been rushed before, I said to him. He went below, and soon we began to burn coal and pile up the feathers in our forefoot. I was on watch with second officer Gibbs. At once we began to furl awnings and make secure against fire. The crew were all showing an anxious spirit, and everybody on board, including the four passengers, were serious and apprehensive. We began to cut through the water at almost twelve knots. Ordinarily we make ten knots. We could see no more of the land contour, but everything seemed to be enveloped in a great cloud. There was no fire visible, but the lava dust rained down upon us steadily. In less than an hour there were two inches of it upon our deck. The air smelled like phosphorus. No one dared to try to locate the sun, because one's eye would fill with lava dust. Some of the blue lava dust is sticking to our mast yet, although we have swabbed decks and rigging again and again to be clear of it. After little more than an hour's fast running, we saw daylight ahead and began to breathe easier. If I had not talked with Captain Freeman and heard from him just how the black swirl of wind and fire rolled down upon him, I would not have been so apprehensive, but would have thought that the darkness and cloud that came down upon us meant just an unusually heavy squall. Chief Engineer Farish's Story 
The Atona's run from Montevideo was a fast one, I think a record-breaker. We were twenty-two days and twenty-one hours from port to port. Off Martinique I stared at the coast for about an hour, and then went below. The blue lava that covered everything faded into a haze that hung over the island so that nothing was distinctly visible. Through my glass I discovered a stream of lava, though. It stretched down the mountainside and seemed to be flowing into the sea. It was not clearly and distinctly visible, however. About three o'clock I went below to take forty winks. I had been in my berth only a few minutes when the steward told me the captain wanted me on the bridge. "'Do you see that, Farish?' he asked, pointing at the land. An outburst of smoke seemed to be sweeping down upon us. It made me think of the Rodham's experience. Smoke and dust closed in about us, shutting out the sunlight and participating a fall of lava on our decks. "'Go below and drive her,' said the captain. "'And I didn't lose any time, I can tell you. "'We burned coal as though it didn't cost a cent. "'The safety valve was jumping every second, "'even though we were making twelve knots an hour. "'For two hours we kept up the pace, "'and then, running into clear daylight, "'let the engine slow down, and we all cheered up a bit. "'Captain Cantell visits the Rodham. "'Captain Cantell went on board the Rodham, "'whose frightful condition he thus describes.' At St. Lucia on May 11th, I went on board the British steamship Robin, which had escaped from the terrible volcanic eruption at Martinique two days before. The state of the ship was enough to show that those on board must have undergone an awful experience. The Rodham was covered with a mass of fine bluish-gray dust or ashes of cement-like appearance. In some parts it lay two feet deep on the decks. This matter had fallen in a red-hot state all over the steamer setting fire to everything it struck that was burnable, and when it fell on the men on board, burning off limbs and large pieces of flesh. This was shown by finding portions of human flesh when the decks were cleared of debris. The rigging, ropes, tarpaulin, sails, awnings, etc. were charred or burned, and most of the upper stanchions and spars were swept overboard or destroyed by fire. Skylights were smashed and cabins filled with volcanic dust. The scene of ruin was deplorable. The captain, though suffering the greatest agony, succeeded in navigating his vessel safely to the port of Castries saint Lucia, with eighteen dead bodies on the deck and human limbs scattered about. A sailor stood by, constantly wiping the captain's injured eyes. I think the performance of the Rodham's captain was most wonderful, and the more so when I saw his pitiful condition. I do not understand how he kept up, yet when the steamer arrived at St. Lucia and medical assistance was procured, this brave man asked the doctors to attend to the others first and refused to be treated until this was done. My interview with the captain brought out this account. I left him in good spirits and receiving every comfort. The sight of his face would frighten anyone not prepared to see it. End of chapter 28, part 1. Recording by Mark Applestott. Harlan, New Jersey.